Hey everybody, welcome back to Green Malkin Lane, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Uh, last week, we released the epic two and a half hour trial of Henry McCoy, and we still have lots of feelings about it. Uh, but two weeks ago, we had the chance to review X-Men number 24, The Plague of the Locust, with our incredible guest stars, Heather, Arturo, and Leah Williams. Uh, this week, we are back with X-Men number 25 from October num- uh, October 1966, which is called The Power and the Pendant. I am thrilled to welcome back our guest Arturo, as well as uh, our new guest, Richie, and uh, our incredible novelist friend, uh, Carrie Harris, uh, who I have recently learned about, but spent a lot of time in the last few weeks uh, reading uh, some of her works. And I'm super impressed and so excited to be able to sit down and talk. Uh, Carrie and I recently, through chatting, discovered we both hail from Salt Lake City, which is uh, bizarre because <laughs> we've never met here. Uh, but uh, Carrie, we're so happy to have you on today. And, and Richie, thank you for joining us. Thank Thanks you. for having me. So I'll have you each introduce yourselves. Uh, let, let's have you start, Richie, if you don't mind. Um, let us know your pronouns. Uh, and uh, the question I have for you guys today is, can you think of some books or works or shows from your childhood that were entertaining at the time but perhaps as you have uh, grown into adulthood, you've realized there may be a little culturally problematic uh, due to uh, cultural sensitivity issues that we look at differently in the 2020s than we did back then. Uh, so Richie, go ahead and begin. Oh, uh, he, him, uh, my pronouns. Um, oh my God, Johnny Quest. Oh, I, mm-hmm. Johnny Quest, it's rough. It's so rough now. Uh, specifically, what about Johnny Quest, do you think? Oh, Haji, everything with Haji. So it's everything with Haji is a problem. <laughs> and Carrie, how about you? Uh, my name is Carrie. My pronouns are she, her. And um, when I was little, uh, my my dad used to watch Kung Fu. And I'm a big fan of, of martial arts and martial arts movies and shows and uh did not occur to me as a young child that maybe having uh, the random white dude be the expert, like like the best martial artist in the entire world and beat up all of the people who have done this uh, for all their lives as a part of their culture, maybe was not a good thing. Sure. Um, in retrospect, it is hard to go back and watch that. Um, it is not the same so, and shouldn't be. Oh, no, no, short, no should it be. Absolutely. Yeah. I, uh, my name is Chad. I uh, use he, him. I, I think I can think of like 20 examples just off the top of my head. Uh, Peter Pan, the Disney movie with the songs about Native Americans, uh, The Lone Ranger. Uh, I remember I, I grew up watching lots of old movies uh, like Breakfast at Tiffany's. There's portrayal of, of Asian characters that is just simply not okay. But even more into, um, I, I grew up watching a lot of cartoons like even uh, Captain Planet, which had a lot of cultural diversity in it. But when you rewatch it now, it's uncomfortable still. Um, my kids and I have regular conversations about what makes something culturally problematic or not. So uh, they're 13 and 10 and we're watch- when we're watching shows, they'll see white people uh, in Looney Tunes cartoons or, or anything. And they'll say, is this racist? And I'm like, Kind of, but it depends on how far they push it. Are they making fun of the character or are they just using a white person to use their voice? Uh, it's, it's always a little, uh, a little bit uh, tricky to try to disseminate that. But generally, 
white people using other people's cultures <laughs> for storytelling purposes is almost always not okay, depending on how we're portraying them, of course. Uh, uh, any comments on, on that from either of you? Oh, Looney Tunes. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Speedy Gonzalez? Oh, it kills me. Mm. Kills me. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a lot packed into all of those things. Uh, hi, I'm Artur. Uh, my pronouns are he and him. And I grew up in the 80s, so pretty much all representation was pretty problematic. Um, I was thinking about this question all day, and two things that I kept circling back to were uh, different strokes. Like, I don't know if you guys ever watched that show. It's oh, yeah. Writing to me that, it, that it's a show that, like, has not had any kind of, like, renaissance. It's either, like, you watched it and you saw it or you didn't, because it's not something that anyone's really streaming or ever talking about. But I imagine a lot of that stuff didn't age well. <laughs> but at the time, it really felt like progressive and kind of like, you know, opening your mind and kind of checking your biases. And I don't know, and, and, and growing up and like watching that, I just kind of assumed like, oh, that's the way the whole world is. And we've solved racism and you know, it's still kind of like an undercurrent out there, but like things are good. And then, you know, we grow up and we realize like, no, not at all. So I don't know if that's a, a great answer, but I, I couldn't stop thinking about the show Different Strokes and how poorly I am sure a lot of that stuff has aged. I feel like there's a thousand answers to that question. Uh, so we're going to talk more about this in, in the analyzation of today's issue where, uh, well, we'll get into that in a few minutes. But for the first part of our podcast, we're going to spend some time interviewing uh, the incredible writer, uh, Carrie Harris. Now, Carrie, you had a history uh, writing novels before you started doing uh, Marvel work. Give us just a little bit of your writing history. Yeah, I actually started writing um, in college for tabletop role-playing games and thought I would just write as a hobby. Um, you know, it was something I love to do, but real people don't become full-time authors. That's not a thing that happens, you know? And so, um, so I got a desk job and, and um, just did some writing on the side. But then after my kids were born, uh, my husband and I decided I would stay at home and, and try to make this writing thing a go. And if I sold something by the time they went to school, then I wouldn't go back to work. And I have not held a desk job since. And my eldest just turned 18. Now, what genres do you tend to write in? Uh, almost everything that I write is speculative. Um, so horror, science fiction, fantasy. Um, I like the fact that you can tell a story about something that is not real and still talk about something that is very real and very human at the same time. I think that's part of what attracts me to the X-Men um, in particular, but speculative fiction in general. So. And then you became involved specifically with writing Marvel prose novels. How did that happen for you? Uh, actually, I got to it via RPGs. Um, the company that I signed with, Aconite, started off doing books for games. And so um, I pitched a book and got it accepted. And then there were some delays. Um, and the, the week that I signed with them, they announced their deal with Marvel. That's so I actually sent them this obnoxious email and I said, please, please, please let me pitch. 
I don't care what I have to do. I will show up on your doorstep and cosplay. <laughs> and they're in England. I am not in England. So, uh, but I meant it. I, if that's what I had to do, I was going to do it. Uh, luckily, they didn't do that to me. Um, but I, I pitched and one of my first pitches got accepted. And um, X-Men was my first superhero love and I got to write for it. So how did you first become uh, an X-Men fan? Um, so I lived in this small town in Ohio and we did not have a comic shop. You know, we had the, the one small bookstore with a single spinny rack and you could tell that the person who st who um, stocked it was not a comics person. They just kind of picked up random issues and they were never in sequential order. And, you know, this was the 80s. You, you couldn't order things the way that you can now. You couldn't get them electronically. So um, I picked up the X-Men because of the cartoon, like a whole lot of other people. And, um, I, but the problem was that I would only get like I'd get one issue and then I'd skip three and then I'd get another one. So you would start filling in the blanks of what happened. And that led me to, I, I was writing X-Men fan fiction back in the eighties. I wrote a series of stories called Kitty and Carrie about me and Kitty pride and we <laughs> lived next door to each other. And we were besties and we went on adventures together and they did not survive, which is the only reason I'm willing to admit this in public because I don't, I don't have to go back and read them. Um, I think that would probably make this story a lot less cute. <laughs> I, uh, I can't imagine reading what I wrote in my teen years. I think it would be very uncomfortable. Uh, yeah. same, same question quickly to uh, Richie and Artura. How did you guys first come across the X-Men? Oh, um, the animated series. Uh, that was my big thing. And then my mother took me to a comic book store because I would not stop bothering her about this character named Cyclops. And I picked up my first issue was um, the early days uh, reprint of X-Men number one. Incredible. And, yeah. And I still have, I still have the issued somewhere in my, my, my comics. Um, actually my parents actually still have all my comics and They've never touched them. They've just left it there. So got so they're the best. And then Artur, how about you? So I've got kind of two answers to that. The my first encounter with them was was really like as a kid. I was like maybe five years old, uh, five or six. And my cousin, who was I don't know, he must have been like twelve, you know. But when you're five, like a twelve year old seems like the coolest person in the world. And he was like a big nerd, but really sweet guy and he would like read comic books with me so like i i was sitting there you know and just fascinated by the pictures and like you know he here's the juggernaut and i was like well what what does that word mean what is a juggernaut and he's like let's go get a dictionary like he was great you know so that was like kind of my intro to them when i was a kid and i don't know that was like just one summer that he happened to be staying at my grandma's house and and we bonded or whatever and then he moved back to the carolinas and i haven't seen or spoke to him in years so um second time was right around uncanny like 274 ish kind of like the the magneto and rogue in the savage land that was 
when I had moved away from kind of reading Spider-Man and I was, I honestly, Jim Lee's art kind of pulled me towards, towards Uncanny. And, and it was right around 274 that that's when I started reading and, and subscribing and like going and, and getting like everyone that I possibly could moving forward. So like Richie, I mean, I was, I was primed and ready when, when the cartoons came out, I was like, it was like a, the golden era, you know? When, uh, when I was around 12, my home life was falling apart pretty hard. And I, uh, I started reading Ninja Turtle comics and then Archie comics canceled the Ninja Turtles line. And I remember going to my local grocery store and picking up X-Force number 27, just randomly off the rack. And uh, within like six months, I was buying like 12 titles a month. And then I got a job at the comic book store. And then it just turned into this lifelong love. I think a lot of us come for the action and we stay for the escapism, right? We find uh, things about us, particularly when we are kind of outcasts or we're looking for a place to belong. We find things about us in the X-Men that we can relate to. And we have those characters that we can relate to. Uh, we come for the action and stay for the soap opera, I think, <laughs> for, for a lot of us. Now, now Carrie uh, wrote this incredible novel under the Xavier's Institute uh, category called uh, Liberty and Justice for All. And for the longtime listeners of the podcast, we have talked in the past about the time-traveling X-Men. Uh, I did a comprehensive episode all about their future, uh, future time travel before they went back to the past. And this book takes place during that time when the X-Men were... Uh, the the divided uh, Cyclops was running his own school called the new, new Xavier School out of the Weapon X facility, uh, where Wolverine was running a different school down uh, at the institute. The uh, the group following Cyclops uh, were kind of mostly newly formed mutants uh, who were kind of training to be X Men, but they're very young, very new in their powers. Uh, and Carrie took uh, particularly two of these characters from uh, that run in Brian Michael Bendis's Uncanny X-Men series that have never had a lot of airtime. Uh, they're prominently used occasionally, uh, but uh, we're, we're talking about uh, Christopher Muse or Triage and Eva Bell, who is uh, Tempest. And Tempest, for those that are cre- reading the current comics, is one of the five on Krakoa. Uh, out of all the characters available to you, Carrie, tell me how you ended up selecting uh, Tempest and Triage. Well, you know, you actually hit on one of the big um, directives that I I got from Marvel because my book was the first book in this series. So I had some leeway to pitch um, somewhere in the timeline where there were a lot of characters that we could use. And the big directive was that they wanted to give page time to characters who hadn't gotten it and who deserve it. So how, did, how did you pick these two particularly? Yeah, well, you know, the first thing was trying to find a, a good time. Um, and then uh, so so I decided on that particular time of uh, that particular point in the timeline, because there's a lot of change and there are a lot of characters that don't have barely any background at all. Um, I picked triage because whenever I play games, I play the healer mm. and the healer never gets to be the hero. You're always in the background. You're always waiting for somebody to do something so that you can be reactive. You're not the star. So I wanted to write a book in which the healer was the star. And um, Tempest, I think, is really interesting because she goes through a major life event that barely gets touched on the page in the comics because there just isn't room. Um, She travels through time, she gets stuck 
And then when she finally comes back, she has had a family and lost it. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to dig into those characters and put them together because I thought um, that they could learn something from each other. And this is very much a coming of age book. You know, these are new mutants coming into their powers, even though they're college age in terms of, of being X-Men, they're kids. I don't think many people would choose Tempest or Triage as their favorites. Uh, frankly, even on their top is, 10 list. Oh, go ahead, Arturo. Which is infuriating. It's infuriating because nowadays we're seeing, you know, Eva Bell is obviously, she's getting a moment like on Krakoa and she's a, she's a, a more prominent character, uh, even if she's not getting a lot of page time. But it has been driving me crazy since, you know, the since the get-go of where is triage like we've got a whole healing gardens where all these mutants are working together there's like a place to have them and it's just baffling to me why other writers haven't seen potential with this character and i'm glad you did terry the uh the work you did with triage in the book specifically uh giving him a backstory where he has a very complicated relationship with his father based in a lot of trauma you also so beautifully uh, orchestrated his relationship as a Black American male with the police in our country, uh, and you handled it so sensitively. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, putting together that story for Triage. Yeah, um, I mean, the minute you know you're going to write a young Black man in America um, in a situation where things have blown up, the police are going to be there, they're going to come, um, and so how do you handle that? And, and we had a lot of conversations with, uh, with my editors and then with Marvel about um, how to approach this in a sensitive way, how much of this story is mine to tell, um, you know, and, and how, to, um, how to put the effort in because it's something that's important. And so I was lucky enough to have some really fabulous readers who have lived experience, who, um, you know, who have young black men in, um, as their children, who have worked in the prison system, who have worked as police and, um, you know, had them go through and, and read the book um, multiple times and tell me what I got wrong, because I am like white bread with the crust cut off. Uh, you can't be much whiter than me. Um, and I know, I know it's different, but I also know what it's like as a member of the LGBTQ community to have people not get it right. Sure. So we're going to talk. We're going to talk today in our issue about wrong ways to handle some cultural portrayals. But this is an example in your novel of the right way to do it. Uh, you know, using sounding boards, doing your research, making sure people have their stories told. Now, another relationship that was really fascinating to me in your book, and I know people are going to want to read it. Uh, so hopefully this isn't too big of a spoiler, but you take a father-son relationship between Sabretooth and Graydon Creed, both of whom are mass murdering, very unlikable characters. Uh, and almost uncomfortably humanized them, if I can say it that way. Tell yeah. me a little bit about how you ended up choosing these two uh, and, and the story you set out to tell there. Well, I have to admit that my selection of Sabretooth was somewhat self-serving because he's one of my favorites and I wanted to. So um, I just wanted to write him. And so uh, I found a way to do it. 
Um, but one of the things that has fascinated me about his story arc um, is this moment, you know, where, and this has happened way back in the comics, so hopefully it's not too much of a spoiler either, but, you know, Graydon is his son, and in the comics, he finds out, and at first he rejects him, at first Sabretooth rejects Graydon, but eventually... Graydon has died and been brought back and died and been brought back so many times and Sabretooth starts trying to hunt him down. And you're kind of wondering is what Sabretoothy thing is he going to do? Is he going to rip his head off? Uh, but instead, Sabretooth sacrifices himself for his son. How does Sabretooth of all people get there? That's what I wanted to know. That's what fascinates me about his story. And um, I think it's one of the strengths of a novel when you sit down and you think, okay, I get to write something in Marvel and it's novel form. What can this do that the TV series and the comics and the movies can't do? And it allows you to live in the character's head and really get a sense of their character. And so this was a perfect opportunity to tell one of those stories because otherwise it's hard for me to believe that Victor Creed would do that. Mm -hmm. You, uh, you brilliantly bridged that gap and you clearly did your research. Uh, and it was, it was, uh, I remember as I was reading the book being like, Ooh, I don't like this relationship, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's, it's really, it's really beautifully portrayed. Great and Creed for those of our listeners is the son of Sabretooth and Mystique, uh, who are both really prominent ex villains. And he's a human politician who went on an anti-mutant crusade. Uh, uh, Richie and Arturo, I don't know if you had a chance to read the book or not, but some of your thoughts on Sabretooth and Great and Creed. Oh, uh, Sabretooth is a son of a bitch. Uh, <laughs> like, uh, like I've just I've never liked the character never liked the character even when they turned him good for a little bit in the comics like a couple of years ago so I, I don't I don't see how you pull that off and I, I'm, I can't wait to read it well okay so I have not read it yet full disclosure um, I was lucky enough I, I had a chance to read Robbie McNiven's book first class which is also part of this series so uh i have not read yours yet carrie um it's on my to-do list uh but i love that that this sandbox exists and that y'all are getting these characters that are so underutilized and and making cool stories with them and, and just doing something that um that is otherwise lacking um as far as Sabretooth, my part-time job is to defend him on Twitter. So I'm right there with you. I love him. I know he's a bad guy. I know he's irredeemable. I know he's horrible. But if you came up in the 90s, uh, there were times where he could have become like an anti-hero. You know, he could have been reformed. We saw him in the Age of Apocalypse as like a good character. So I like to think that at his core... There might be something worth redeeming and otherwise he's just horrible to he's somebody that you just love to hate well and i think that's a fun thing to play with because he doesn't want to be redeemed so you can do right. the right thing even if it's for the wrong reasons and that's what i wanted to play with um so i completely agree with you 
I uh, I fully expected Sabretooth to be the villain of the story, and he was not. So I will not spoil that here. There's a surprise uh, turn toward the end where I was like, "Oh, <laughs> I was I was genuinely not expecting." Uh, Carrie, I, I I also am a writer, uh, although not as professional as you, and I tend to think in terms of story arc and character relationship. And you captured particularly the Tempest Triage relationship, but also the Sabretooth, Graydon, Tempest, Triage kind of combination uh, so, so brilliantly. It was really surprising. Um, and it made me care about the characters of Tempest and Triage more. Uh, and I think this book fits so comfortably into continuity. I know technically the novels aren't there, but it really does fit. There's no reason for it not to be there. So just brilliant job for everybody uh, who, who's out there. Make sure you uh, pick Carrie's book up. It's really wonderful. Now, more recently, Carrie, you had a chance to write a ghostwriter novel. Uh, yeah. starring uh, the witches from the witches series featuring uh, Satana and Topaz and uh, Jennifer Kale. Uh, and this, I, I was surprised. I'm a long term, long time uh, Marvel nerd from all different realms. This picked up some on, on some unresolved plot lines from some ghostwriter stories uh, and then told this beautiful story of these four characters who have so much trauma between them uh, and you captured all of their individual voice, voices so brilliantly. Uh, set up the novel Witches Unleashed for everybody just a little bit. Um, so Witches Unleashed is based on uh, two comic series. One is the vicious cycle storyline from Ghost Rider in which Johnny Blaze has escaped from hell but Lucifer has piggybacked. And um, because it's Lucifer, he can't quite fit through and so he breaks into 666 shards, each of which possesses a person and sends it out to do mayhem and murder. And Johnny has to hunt them down and make things right again. Um, so in that series, you see about 20 of the shards or so on the page. So there are a lot of shards that are unaccounted for and Witches Unleashed tells the story of one of them. And in order to hunt down this, um, this shard, he has to consult with his cousin, Jennifer Kale, who is a part of a coven um, from the Witches miniseries, which was four issues about three witches who were put together by Doctor Strange. And um, they're supposed to fight evil and it does not go as well as <laughs> it should have. And they resent him for it. Um, so they go off on their own. They have a magical tome containing a demon that they're protecting and they're pretty much decided, they've decided they're going to do their own thing until Johnny comes knocking on their door and asks them for help. And Witches is a series that always should have been handled by women, but there's a line in your book, and I'll just throw this out for the readers. Uh, back in the Witches series, one of the characters has a costume in which she's wearing pants that are just never buttoned, which is ridiculous. <laughs> and Carrie, Carrie literally has a line in her book where one of the characters is like, hey, did you finally throw out those pants that never buttoned? Which is just brilliant. So picking up on little nuances from the book, uh, you can write uh, teenage heroes, you can write uh, witches uh, and grizzled, you know, demon-possessed bike riders. Uh, I'm super impressed. Um, the, the witches book was also really, really surprising, uh, and, and quite entertaining. Uh, the trauma of the characters is what really captivated me. The way that you showed their backstories and the way the trauma played up in their psyches, uh, from Satana to Jennifer Hale, uh, I'm sorry, Jennifer Kale to, uh, to Topaz, the, the voices you used for each of those characters is so unique with, uh, if I, I am assuming, uh, Ghost Rider or Johnny Blaze was your favorite, the way you handled him in the book. Uh, did you have fun writing this one? I had a blast. Um, I am a Ghost Rider fan from a long time ago, 
because my family, they're all bikers. And so I picked up my first Ghost Rider comic thinking that my dad would think it was cool. And um, so I've always had a deep love for him. But I also, um, you know, I think there are a lot of female characters who just never quite, quite got a chance. And so I wanted to, um, I wanted to put him with some women who could keep up with him. Mm-hmm. And um, kind of accidentally, the story turned out to be a story about family. Mm-hmm. Because each one of them, you know, you've talked about trauma. Each one of them has trauma, but their trauma is related to their family. Jennifer Kale's brother died and she feels guilty. Topaz doesn't know who her family is. Satana's father is the devil. (laughs) There's trauma there. You know, Johnny Blaze has lost his kids. And uh, one of the things about the witches comic is that the women just bickered like toddlers. And I understand, ooh, now I'm punching things. I understand why um, why they did it because they're under a lot of stress. They're in a group they don't want to be in. Nobody's telling them anything. Um, but I wanted to see later on when they become a family, even though they're each still struggling with their own personal demons. Uh, Carrie, I was I was a huge fan reading these books, but hearing you talk about them, I'm an even bigger fan. Uh, deep deep nerdy stuff for Marvel for our listeners. There's like. 12 different versions of the devil. We all know Mephisto the most, but this this one features the devil Lucifer as well as Satan's father, who's a different devil. Because, you know, you have multiple hells and multiple devils in Marvel land. All uh, the devils. <laughs> now, Carrie, you also have a couple of books uh, coming out. Uh, one of them, which is X-Men featured. Tell us a little about those real quick. Yeah, I've had a busy year and I cannot believe my luck. Um, next month, uh, well, actually, depending on when this comes out, might be this month. I think it's this month. Um, the School of X anthology is coming out, and that has a variety of short stories all set um, in the same time as um, the other Xavier's Institute novels. So mine does uh, focus on triage and tempest and brings them back, um, but they have been visited by Polaris and Danny Moonstar uh, with a request for a favor. And so uh, I was really excited to get to read. I got I got to. Um, to write a novella length story for that and and revisit the characters that I loved and bring in some new ones that I've been a fan of. Um, so I have that one. And then next spring, um, I, I wrote an Avengers book. And um, so Shadow Avengers comes out in the spring and there's a, there's a book with my name on it and it's on Spider-Man's leg and I could not feel cooler. <laughs> Back when I worked for the Marvel handbooks, I used to get a monthly check in the mail that had Spider-Man on it. And I'd be like, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was great. It's uh, the little things. No, it really, it really is incredible. I, uh, I am so excited for both of your upcoming books uh, and uh, for everything you have coming forward. I would love to see you on a monthly book. Frankly, I, I think you have a, a very unique and incredible voice. So thank you not only for what you've done, but for being here with us today. Thank you. I would like to see me there too. So um, let, let's, we, we can work on one together. I would love that. <laughs> okay. Uh, hey, hey, here's, the, here's the question. If, if you could have your pick of the litter and start writing an X book tomorrow without giving out any, you know, big ideas, what would, what would your dream project be? What would your book be today? 
Well, the, the book that I would pitch if they gave me a chance to pitch, because I figure I'll start small. I want to, I want to do a Dazzler book. Hmm. I love oh Dazzler. God bless you. Uh, <laughs> I love Dazzler when she's handled by the right writers and so frequently she is not. <laughs> when, and she's one of those characters who has not gotten like, she has so much untapped potential and it drives me insane. She is a badass, and no one has figured out how to put that on the page just quite. I want it, my precious. <laughs> uh, so quick question for each of you, and you can only choose one. Who is your favorite X-Man, and who is your favorite X-Villain? And I'll, I'll answer first. My favorite is uh, Cannonball, if I have to choose one. And my favorite villain, although everyone hates me for this, is uh, Sauron. Hmm. <laughs> Richie, how about you? I love, I love your taste. Soran is oh. great. <laughs> Thank you, Arturo. <laughs> oh, Cyclops. Cyclops has to be my favorite. Um, oh, um, the my villain, my favorite villain. Oh, he's I don't even see him as a villain anymore. Apocalypse. Oh yeah, great. Carrie? Um, I, I mean, Kitty has always been my favorite just because without her, I wouldn't have gotten into the X-Men. So it's kind of a personal thing because she was like me. Um, so I, probably Kitty Pride, and she's actually grown, which I like. Um, either Sabretooth or, no, you said I couldn't pick two. So I'll say Mystique since I already mm. talked about Sabretooth. And Arturo. Ooh. Wow. Excellent answer. Um, favorite X-Men? Uh, God, it's hard not to just, it's hard not to give you two answers, which would be Magneto and Emma Frost. Um, I kind of have a thing for villains, especially reformed ones. Uh, so you know what? That'll be my answer to both questions at the same time. Emma Frost and Magneto. <laughs> Excellent. Uh well, uh, with that, let's jump into X-Men number uh, 25 today. We, uh, we have a, a, a cover portrayal. We're going to start there. Let me hear, if you guys have it in front of you, just your initial reactions uh, to the cover. First thing to note, Jean Grey is not on this cover. She's off at college for most of this issue. But we have the four boy X-Men kind of rushing a man in a purple hat named uh, El Tigre. Uh, what were some of your, th your thoughts on this cover initially? Ooh, I loved it. The coloring, the purple. Oh, it's fantastic. Same. The the art got me so stoked when when you asked me about doing this issue. I was like, right off the bat, looking at the cover, like, ooh, who's this icon? And I'm a sucker for queer coded villains, so anything in purple, I'm kind of there. Um, <laughs> Well, also, though, you notice, like, the X-Men really look kind of uh, overwhelmed. Um, you know, we, we kind of see them in the weeds on this one, which is an interesting choice, I think. We also see a lot of kind of Mayan and Aztec imagery along the sides as they're kind of leaping over statues. Now, I, I did a little bit of research, and I know you guys all did some prep as well. During this time, it's almost as though a lot of writers were fascinated with, so this is 1960s, right? With uh, with 
other cultural representations and they saw them as platforms to be able to tell stories in, right? So things like the African jungle is one space and the Egyptian desert is another. Uh, but this is almost like an Indiana Jones vibe. The book is entirely handled by white writers and creators, but it's almost as if they see this as like, ooh, let's put the X-Men in this other civilization to fascinate our target audience, which was, of course, white teenage boys. And we're going to talk a lot about the portrayal in this. We want to be very careful as we start this book uh, to state that the creators of this book, we are not calling anyone who created anything here uh, racist. I want to be careful with the terminology. But when we have people who meant well, even when they were telling stories and we're analyzing them 40 to 50 years later, we have the right to be critical. These are books that the mythos of the X-Men are built on. And there's some very problematic things in this book that we'll discuss. Uh, but but uh, it's kind of an interesting backdrop. Uh, Arturo and Richie, was that handled well enough? And, and let me be clear, I hope it's okay. Uh, uh, if you guys are willing to answer this question, tell us a little bit about your cultural backgrounds, uh, if that feels safe to do so for this podcast. So uh, I guess I'm, I'm white passing. I'm definitely white passing, but I'm Cuban, um, born and raised in Miami. So it's it's an interesting spot to be in because growing up here, it just felt like, well, so is everybody else I know. So are all my other peers. And then, you know, even people that aren't my peers, you know, have different uh, ties to Cuba. And so it's weird um, because you're kind of, part of a minority but you're in a majority space once i moved out of miami and you know lived in different cities then i experienced you know different different experiences than than just being in miami um but yeah and then richie do you want to try again but can you hear me now yeah perfect all right awesome um a mexican-american uh california orange county um we call ourselves uh, chicanos here um no, just um, I, it's so hard to explain it. It's so hard to like. I'm, I'm Hispanic, but I'm American, and 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 all these things. So it's really hard for me just to put it like in a little box, because I, I never try to do it. I never go up to anyone and be like, "Oh, I'm Richie. I'm, I'm Hispanic," you know, or, "Or I'm Richie. I'm Mexican." I just I just say I'm Richie, you know, and and I'm from California. Sure. So like. It, it is really uncomfortable actually to, to be like, I got to talk about my, 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 uh, you know, my ethnicity and, and, and my people and, and all those things. So I, I actually never, ever, ever really talk about it, to be honest with you. Cause it's not, it's so, so not there for me, you know, like, like I have friends of all, all creed and, and, and color. So, you know, this, this is a weird topic for me actually. Yeah. No, I've had a chance to build friendships with both uh, Richie and Arturo prior to this podcast, and I hope you feel respected and understood and safe. Uh, you both have full license to call me on any questions that I ask that feel problematic. Uh, I wanted to make sure that we had cultural representation here, although we have people from all ethnic backgrounds on all episodes of the podcast, but this one in particular required some specific voices. Uh, Carrie called herself earlier uh, white bread with the crust cut off, but I'm very much the same. I am. Uh, I'm very much uh, Western European in uh, in origin, but my family dates back to uh, you know American culture for for generations now. Uh, so I'm really glad that we can gather to kind of have this conversation. Uh, Carrie, anything you wanted to state before we jump into the issue? Um, just to, to kind of second what you said, that um, 
I'm still learning just like everybody else. So if there's anything that I say that it just doesn't, it, it doesn't come out right, or I need to be called home on it, please do. And uh, speaking to yeah, our white, uh, oh, go ahead, Arturo. I'm, I was just going to say, I mean, and I appreciate that and, and, you know, your sensitivity to having us on and, and to talk about it, but um, you know, much like Richie, like, it's funny because I said Cuban, but it's almost like down here, it's Cuban American and the American is just like silent. <laughs> you just don't say it. It's like everybody here just says they're Cuban, but then I'll meet somebody who literally came from Cuba three years ago and then realize just how American I am. You know, it's, it's all just varying degrees. So like, you know, everyone's just bringing their own perspective. I mean, one thing that I just want to throw out there before we even tackle the, the comic, I think it's worth noting it was just such a different world. Like we'll get into it in the issues, but their access to information, like when they're, when they're looking for some hot clues, Scott goes and buys a newspaper. <laughs> like they have like three channels to tune into to see what's on TV. <laughs> like it was just a whole different world. So like, I appreciate the other thing I want to say is like back then certainly felt more like the comics were for kids. So I appreciate the notion of these writers taking something from, from the real world, quote unquote, you know, like taking references to other religions, other countries, other people or whatever, and telling a fiction to it. I think there's like an educational component to that. That's really helpful for kids. And I think that's something that we glossed over. We look back at comic books with such a critical eye and it's like, if they're always, if they've always been for kids on some level, they're a lot more grown up nowadays. Back then, they were literally for kids, and I think, you know, that's just worth noting. But yeah, problematic stuff will abound. So my education is in social work, and I work as a therapist for my day job. And in school, we had to do a lot of work on what they call cultural competency because I have to work with clients from all different walks of life. One of the principles I try to adopt in my day job, and I hope that transcends to this podcast, and this is for everyone listening, but particularly my white listeners who feel like they don't know how to breach these topics with other people, it's okay to ask questions, but it is nobody's job to educate you. It is nobody's job to inform you about things, about queer issues, about cultural issues. Uh, it's okay to ask questions, and it's okay to treat things uh, culturally sensitive uh, but we have to let people who have lived experiences have the primary voice when it comes to things, which trump our experiences as people who have a lot of privilege. Uh, the, the delicate conversation we had about, uh, uh, you know, black men with the police is an example of that. And and the way that that can be portrayed if we take the time to listen and portray things well. So, Carrie, thank you for being uh, uh, a good uh, predecessor for this conversation today. As we jump into the issue, it's called The Power and the Pendant. On page one, we have uh, kind of a splash page for the first time, really. Uh, the, it's not an action spot from within the issue, but we have the characters kind of divided along the lines of this mystical pendant, which we're going to see later. We've got the X-Men on one side and uh, El Tigre and his two, uh, I don't know, uh, henchmen <laughs> uh, working with him on the other with Professor X kind of looming over the top. On the bottom, let me read the credits out loud quickly. We've got edited by Stan Lee, scripted by Roy Thomas, illustrated by Werner Roth, inked by Dick Ayers, lettered by Sam Rosen, and imitated by Brand Ech. And I'll, uh, I'll, I'll give a continuity deep dive here for just a minute. There was old commercials that talked about, uh, you know, uh, Brand X was the always the opposing thing. So it was my, my, uh, my product versus Brand X, right? Like my laundry soap versus Brand X's laundry soap. It was kind of a running thing. Uh, Marvel launched a series called Brand Ech, 
ECCH uh, back in the 60s. And it only ran for a little while. Uh, it was called Not Brand Ech. And they had kind of parodies of uh, ridiculous stories about heroes, almost like Mad Magazine did. You could probably find some of these online if you look. Uh, we've talked about Forbushman a little bit. He was the uh, mascot for the series. And we had terrible portrayals of characters like Magneto was spelled M-A-G-N-E-T-O, N-E-A-T-O, like Magneto. Uh, we had Superman and Dr. Deranged instead of Dr. Strange. They're absolutely ridiculous comics, but it's fun to look up if you can find any issues of a uh, not brand ech from back then. Uh, what did you guys think of this splash page initially? Oh, I love it. I love it. It's like so much action going on. And as a kid, I remember reading this as a kid and, and just being so excited. Like, like I couldn't wait to turn the page. I, I love that the concept of a splash page almost seems novel. Like, like the writer took, or the editor took, you know, made a point of just like clarifying what the comic starts on the next page. Don't get lost here, guys. This is just a splash page. <laughs> and there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that in this, in this comic. I think we'll see that, you know, in the story where it almost feels like they had to hit a certain word count <laughs> And they're really telling you and not just showing you. And it's, uh, it, it's it, it, right out of the gate, we get that. Uh, Carrie, any thoughts from you here? I just, you know, I hadn't read this issue before. And um, at first I was thinking that uh, Professor X's head was part of the pendant. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it really threw me for a loop. But um uh, you know, just having him kind of narrate what is happening um, to orient you to the story is is an interesting uh, it's an interesting way to go because you're seeing them start to learn how to introduce stories in ways to orient readers who, like me, skipped five or six books. I appreciate, uh, and this is one one of the issues where the cultural sensitivity, I think, is great in some ways. I appreciate that we have these three men uh, on the kind of villain side. We've got El Tigre and Tolak and Ramon, and they all look very distinctive from each other. Different senses of fashion, different skill sets. I do like that they're very distinguishable. Uh, although, again, we'll, we'll talk about their portrayal in the issue itself. Uh, as we jump into the issue, the X-Men are uh, picking up or taking Jean back to college after their recent adventures uh, and they drive by a burning orphanage. And even though there are children in danger, they make sure to take the time to put on their costumes first because, you know, my secret identity is more important than these children's lives. Uh, but they rush in and we get to see a lot of really fun heroics as the X-Men uh, save a lot of children and, uh, and the firemen come and kind of respect them at the end. Professor X stays in the car because he thinks if they see me, then they'll know who the X-Men are. But the uh, the teens all rush into danger. Uh, Carrie, what were some of your thoughts on this uh, on this initial action sequence as they as they rush to save the children from the burning orphanage? I thought it was really interesting to see, you know, because in in the issues at this time, they're kind of starting to play with the fact that um, you know people dislike mutants, you know, and they've started to introduce you know muty as a slur and things like that, but. In this case, the kids are pretty happy to see them. Now, of course, you're on a burning building. You're going to be happy to see somebody to save you. But uh, there's there's no initial distrust. You know, maybe they set the fire. Um, so I thought that was an interesting choice to show that there are still people who welcome their help. 
And all four of them, all, uh, well, all, all five of the students get a chance to shine. They get a chance to use their powers to help mm -hmm. save these kids. Uh, Richie and Arturo, how did you guys like this sequence? Oh, I loved it. But my favorite part is when Bobby's climbing on the thing and he's talking about how glamorous Angel's wings are. <laughs> it's like, like Bobby just wants Angel so bad. And I love it. Bobby's generating his own ice ladder as he climbs up and he's like uh, my ice ladder is almost as glamorous as angels having wings you can hear almost hear a swoon in his voice as he climbs <laughs> oh it's fantastic so it's, it's literally impossible to read this era of Iceman without that kind of queer lens and it just makes him so much more enjoyable 100% we, uh, we got to in interview uh, uh, some writers who took Iceman back then uh, as a gay character. Anthony Oliveira talked about uh, writing them uh, as as teen Iceman having a crush on Angel and like not being able to rectify it. Uh, it was it was really wonderful. And yeah, I agree. It's hard to look at this uh, otherwise. Any other moments from this sequence uh, rescuing the kids that really popped out to you guys? Uh, I just want to give. Go ahead. Go, go ahead. ahead. Let's go carry then Arturo. All right. Um, the, the fact that Jean um, was the one person who may have had a problem because her her she wasn't strong enough and everybody had to check on Jean. Like, he might be too heavy for you. Um, yeah, that was a thing. And she nearly faints because she had to use her powers once. <laughs> We're delicate. Dad. That's literally what I was going to bring up is like, oh, my God. I'm sorry. No, painting is like a recurring thing. Oh, yeah. See, that, that was going to be my point as well. Like, Jean is just, she's so poorly written. But then as you go through the issue, you realize how much worse the X-Men flop when she's not around. So even though she fainted, she was kind of like the MVP. She kind of got them to save the day versus when she wasn't around as we'll see later. Uh, now, while Gene did get a dirty deal, I do think Iceman and Angel both really struggled in this section too. Uh, Angel flies a couple kids down and then he has to rest before he can go back. Iceman's on his ladder, but it gets melted and Gene's got to save him. But yeah, they do treat her as as like the, the wilting flower so frequently back then. It's, it's, uh, it's regularly aggravating. Uh, Jean goes back to college and uh, we see again, this character that was just recently introduced named Ted Roberts who is kind of a flirty love interest of hers. Uh, she walks out of the car with her suitcase and he immediately demands to take her suitcase so they can get to class on time. Uh, we'll see more of Ted in the coming issues, but did you guys have any thoughts on Ted here? Oh, Ted's a douche. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, oh, that line of, oh, don't all women? Oh, I can't, I just can't. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, he's, he's, she, she says, how did you know I'd show up at the last moment? He says, uh, don't all women? Oh. Yeah, that's uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, Harry at is, worst, I don't trust. At worst, I don't trust Ted. At best, Ted is somebody that even with the best of intentions would still be like a blithering idiot and an ass. <laughs> Carrie, does this match your college experience? Oh, I could not meet a single person without thinking that they might be a love interest everyone all the time <laughs> i'm sensing sarcasm <laughs> oh should i lay it on a little thicker 
Now, as the X-Men are driving away, we have Cyclops really ruminating uh, about Jean. He's jealous. She's meeting other people, uh, but he still just cannot talk to her at all. Um, Richie, you had some thoughts on Cyclops here, right? Yeah, I had some thoughts on Cyclops. There was um, this interview on Jay, Jay Eden from... Um, um, Jay and Miles explained the X-Men did. Um, she wrote um, this one shot of, um, on Cyclops and she wrote him as, mm-hmm. as a man who had... Huh? Go ahead. Oh, well, she wrote Cyclops as a man who had um, autistic, who was autistic. And um, it's, I'm not autistic and I, and, and um, but I do have my own um, um uh, learning disabilities, um, and and I relate to Cyclops as in Jean very much sees see Cyclops as someone who's who's cold, who um, she doesn't understand him, and and what what they don't understand is that like 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 maybe he has like like these um I don't know how to say it I don't know how to say it correctly or it doesn't sound bad enough can someone help me um, with this I'm so sorry. Oh, no, no, you're okay. I, I think uh, Cyclops' psychology is really fascinating. And I think we're going to do a deeper exploration on this soon. But he has this PTSD background, right? Mm-hmm. Growing up in the orphanage, seeing his parents go, feeling responsible for his brother who got adopted when he didn't. He's got his eyes, which he can't control because of his head injury. But I do think there, there could very well be a level of autism based on how repressed he is with his emotions and his inability to express them through this time. He's very restricted in his affect and his communication. We're 25 issues in and he still has not said, Gene, I love you. Uh, even though he's thinking all the time, does she notice me? Does she see me? And she's just waiting for him to make any sort of move. I think that's a fascinating uh, uh, view of his character. Uh, any thoughts from uh, Carrie and Arturo here? I'm so glad you brought that up, Richie, because I, I, I wasn't, you know, sometimes you're you're not sure, like, how in the weeds we're going to get into, like, other, you know, commentators or whatever. But I think Jay's work is, is really worth pointing to, um, specifically because he was published in that in that Marvel, uh, you know, one shot or, or whatever about Cyclops, um, but has spoken about it also extensively. And just when you have that when you put that layer on your on your reading of cyclops and you see him as um and i hope i get the the wording right here but uh neuroatypical um she kind of imply or he kind of implies that scott may be on the spectrum and it's kind of tied to how his powers work and how he has to keep control of it and and it just i i couldn't agree with you more it totally changes the way i i see cyclops now and the way I understand him as a character and, and reading this, this, you know, early material, it's like, this was like the most frustrated version of Cyclops. Like he, he had all these feelings, but he's so repressed and frustrated. And, and uh, it's nice to see where Cyclops gets to eventually, but this early stuff is pretty painful. Yeah. Yeah. I carry any thoughts. Uh, yeah, just that, you know, I'm actually not familiar with that work, but I'm going to have to look it up because Cyclops is a character that in all of his various incarnations or through his development, he's always locked away in some some form or another. And and sometimes as a, as a reader, I'm one of those people who wants to strangle him. Um, I have a, a deep need to shake some sense into Scott Summers. Um, but 
you know, reading through it with that lens, um, that, that gives me some food for thought. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm somebody who's written Scott Summers um, and, and wrote him as a, as a character who is, who is very much locked away, but always for reasons. Right, right. There's in the very next panel, we also see Angel with some thought bubbles about how, you know, Jean's flirting with this other guy. Scott likes her. I think I'm done with her. I think I'm moving on. And there's an interesting trend. Well, I'll give this some more attention in a future episode. But Stan Lee, in all of his works back then, would have these unrequited love interests, people pining after each other. But a few years later, as other writers started kicking in, they started changing those stories. Iron Man and Pepper Potts. And suddenly Pepper's interested in Happy Hogan. Uh, Daredevil and Karen Page. And suddenly Karen Page runs away. She doesn't want to be there anymore. Uh, Peter Parker and Betty Brandt. Uh, I mean, we, we can go on and on, but there reaches a certain point in these in these 60s runs where the characters finally kind of switch their goals around. If they're not going to get married, like Mr. Fantastic and Invisible Woman did, then it's time to break them up and move them on. And the introduction of Ted Roberts almost seems to uh, 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 emulate that. Now, pretty soon, Angel's going to meet Candy Southern, who we're all going to see uh, in, a, in a quick issue. So all of the characters are paired off at that point. Uh, so there's some interesting food for thought there. Now, Richie, are you willing to uh, take these next several pages as we meet El Tigre uh, and and his friends? Uh, tell us a little bit about who they are and what they're doing here and some of your thoughts about those things. Well, <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts on it. And um, Well, tell us what happens first. Well, it's actually, um, you know, they're treasure hunters, which is um, fantastic. They're uh, they're going to, uh, they're in, you, uh, you meet them in uh, Central America. Uh, they're three treasure hunters. Um, El Tigre is, is the leader. And then you get uh, Ramon and, and Tulak, who are uh, his uh, kind of lackeys, right? Um, and then, then they find, then they're digging and then they find this pendant, right? This, this treasure that he's been looking for. And it's the treasure um, of Cuckoo Khan. And, and then out of nowhere, he starts magically kind of getting these powers, right? And there's there's a there's a point point in it where he's he's kind of sleeping, dozing off, and his two lackeys hate him so much that they 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 try to kill him and 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 steal from him. But then his powers activate, which is which is wonderful, and he um he he, he takes control of the lackeys, and then he uh, yeah, and then he gets the pendant and the, and the pendant uh, gives him powers and and now he has to go off and find the other part of the pendant. So uh, to give a little context here, so they're in a fictional country in Marvel world, which is called San Rico, and it's only ever appears in all of continuity in these two issues in X-Men 25 and X-Men 26. We've never seen San Rico again. Uh, El, Tigre, El Tigre is a gem hunter. His name is Juan Meroz, and he's got these two men he's hired, uh, Ramon and Tolak, uh, who he's called? Who is called his quote-unquote Indian companion, which is uncomfortable. Uh, we can talk about that. Uh, and they have a very adversarial relationship. They want to rest, and El Tigre is like, "No, you will keep working." When he gets this pendant, he discovers it's half of the Kukulkan pendant. With the other half, he discovers he will get you know kind of unlimited godlike powers. Uh, but he gets these kind of powers of telepathy and telekinesis almost. Uh, by using this pendant that he finds in this treasure trove. Uh, Richie, what were some of your thoughts on these panels as you as you see these characters introduced? Um, just that first panel when he calls him his Indian friend is 
when I first read it, I didn't think anything of it. Oh, this, oh, okay, that's that's well, that's cool, you know. And then rereading it and rereading, it, I'm like, oh my god, because it's 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 a slur where I come from. It's it's a straight slur, and and it it made me feel so uncomfortable reading it, and how he's dressed and and Tulak, I, I believe, means um like lizard, um in, in Spanish. So so you put those all together and and it's just so it's very uncomfortable, so uncomfortable to read. The the minds of the writers, I was just going to interject. It's almost like Christopher Columbus landed in over here and thought he was in the West Indies and started calling people Indians. It's considered in America a slur even now to call a Native American an Indian. But this is a Central American person. And to have a white writer using that term is is pretty offensive, frankly. I I do want to just throw out there and just kind of like devil's advocate for the hell of it um well one thing and and this kind of goes back to the splash page and and talking about how xavier's head looked like it was part of the stone i do want to note like skin palettes were very limited because everybody in this is the same color right so i mean that that's just like not helpful especially in this but i think choosing these three you know, this, this villain and these two henchmen, if there was any thought behind it, it was to kind of show that Hispanic, or as they put it in here, uh, Latin, or, or Latin Americans, the leering Latin, he's called at one point. Um, but, you know, people south of the border, let's say, there are different people. There are indigenous people that are obviously, like, referred to here with, a, you know, the, the worst word they could have chosen, but... I read it and I was like, wow, language changes. Like nowadays, like this is, this is the indigenous stereotype. Like this isn't good stuff, but at least it's like, there's a difference that one of them is uh, Argentinian. And then El Tigre is kind of vague. He's kind of like the, you know, the, the insert character. You don't, he doesn't have enough info. You can kind of just fill in the blanks. So not good, but I do appreciate the effort to like differentiate and show, you know, that there's these variations of people, not just this homogenous, you know, Latin American. Some of your thoughts on the on the fashion and the portrayal of these characters as treasure hunters. That's a kind of a double question, but what were your thoughts there, you guys? Um, it's funny because I remember when you when you told me about uh, reviewing this, and and I think I hit you up about nineteen sixties fashion, in um uh, in uh in Latin America, and and it was something I didn't know about at all, and I understand where he's coming from. It's kind of you know gem hunters that it's like this like this B movie kind of Indiana Jones kind of adventure going on. So I understand what he's doing. I understand this is the nineteen sixties, but again, we're looking through it through the lens of today. And, and what's going on on today and and I'm just like like I don't think anyone in the 60s wore ponchos like that and you know it just it just wasn't a thing and I even did research and and looked to see what type of type of the fashion was and it was nothing like that also not very practical for for treasure hunting really um, <laughs> It's like it's like the lady characters who are fighting in mini skirts and heels. You, nobody does that. It's not. It, you're not comfortable. Um, I did, I did love El Tigre's. I first at first I thought it was a jumpsuit because it's all purple. I just want to call him a 
a fashion icon because he looked really hot. It's it's not a it's not a jumpsuit. It's like he's tied his shirt kind of like it's pretty gay, bro. <laughs> I love it. He's well ventilated too. <laughs> yeah, I do. Yeah, I'm digging. I'm digging his open shirt. Like, uh, yeah, he. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. This this might be my cosplay, you guys. I think I could do this. Oh, I can't wait to watch that. I uh, make sure to send photos, Arturo. <laughs> deep cut. Deep cut. No, uh, well, a deep cut V and a deep cut into continuity at the same time. <laughs> now, El Tigro seems to have kind of the same mentality as a lot of 60s villains. He's interchangeable with Magneto and the Mandarin and Dr. Doom, where he's just kind of shouting and calling people names and like saying, do as I say. Uh, it's also worthy to note, and we won't deep dive here much, but Marvel, uh, the universe has a series of godly pantheons. There are the Norse gods and the Greek gods. Uh, and here we have kind of the introduction of the Mayan or Aztec gods and Kukulkan being one of them. Interestingly enough, there is another character in another pantheon out there introduced in Thor uh, called Quetzalcoatl, which is t- t- uh, in, in, in lore, the, the uh, ancient lore, Quetzalcoatl and Kukulkan are the same. Uh, he's the Mesoamerican kind of serpent deity uh, with, uh, you know, plumes and feathers uh, on a snake. Now, I grew up Mormon, and this is a weird thing for anyone listening, and I apologize. But one of the things that distinguish Mormons in Utah uh, is they believe that the uh, resurrected being Jesus Christ visited Central America after he was killed. And Mormon lore will sometimes teach that because they culturally appropriate a lot of shit from uh, Native American and South American and Central American culture. They teach that Jesus Christ was actually Quetzalcoatl. And the reason that the uh, that the ancient cultures wrote this into their mythos is because Christ appeared to them and they called him the feathered serpent for some reason. So I grew up believing that, which is a huge problem, right? <laughs> as I as I as I as an adult, I analyze this. It's a it's a major major issue as you see religious iconography uh, even being rewritten by uh, more modern religions. Uh, we don't have to go on a deep dive on that, but uh, we'll see more of Kukulkan at the end of this issue and in next issue. But any thoughts on that before we proceed? Well, nowadays we know that all of those were really just apocalypse, so no, it's all good. <laughs> Uh, Carrie, you're from Utah. Any commentary? Uh, actually, that's something that I didn't know. Um, so I'm I'm fascinated. I I read my Book of Mormon because I lived there, but um, no, I I missed that part. Yeah, Mormon for me was a former lifetime, so please nobody judge me. It's just the way I was raised. <laughs> but still, it's a it's a big problem. Absolutely. Um, okay, we're gonna come back to as, these characters. Oh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. As an avid. Uh, Real Housewives of Salt Lake City fan. I am fascinated. <laughs> I have a million questions, but we'll get to those offline. Yeah, let's talk about those. My my partner and I recently went on a gay cruise, and when we told someone we were from uh, Utah, they were like, oh man, Real Housewives has really put you guys on the map. <laughs> I was like... <laughs> Uh, okay, so we jump back into uh, Professor X uh, with the students, and they're all they're all kind of joking around and studying. Uh, we see some commentary here, which kind of reveals something we've been wondering for a while. Cerebro, the machine, will not only detect mutation; it will also detect 
threats that are kind of adjacent to mutation. So we regularly cer see Cerebro freaking the fuck out whenever like Juggernaut approaches. Here it's going off when, when the Stranger approached. Here it's going off when El Tigre approaches. So finally, we have a little bit of context for that. Uh, but Professor X needs to run down and talk to the students. And uh, he activates his mechanical walking suit, which we have seen in the last two issues with some very unfortunate disguises. And it gives out on the stairs. He falls, but he has specially prepared some tentacles to catch him just in case his mechanical legs didn't work. Sai, uh, hashtag ableism. Any thoughts on this from you guys? Uh, this uh, this appearance of one of only four appearances ever of Professor, Professor X's mechanical walking legs. They're awfully complicated assistive devices <laughs> for no real reason except that maybe we, there's a belief that we want to see him walking but uh or, or that maybe that's a spectacular disguise because people know he can't um he's very he's very self-hating back then he hates yeah. the fact that he can't walk and it's almost like he's seeking to cure it uh, uh, he uses this in the last couple of issues with ridiculous disguises. Uh, Arturo, you were with us when we talked about his uh, very fashionable hermit disguise to trick the locust. Uh, were you happy to see his legs here again? Um, no, not at all. I'm going to skip over all of the problematic and uncomfortable stuff about that and just cut to the chase where the solution is he has a hidden panel of mechanical tentacle arms that come out of the wall to save him. Um, I have so many questions of the practical uses of mechanical tentacles that Charles Xavier has found, and I, I, I need to see schematics. I need to. I need. I have questions. Um, that yeah. I, I kind uh, of love that Chris Claremont's kind of tentacle curious uh, tendencies later down the road. <laughs> yeah, you can kind of trace them all the way here. I think these tentacle arms are on loan from Dr. Octopus. Now, in a couple of in a couple more episodes, when we review issue 27, we have uh, an expert coming on to talk about ableism. I've been referencing that for a minute, but we have a lot of conversation to have uh, about Professor X and his portrayal in the 60s. So we're going to pause that conversation. Uh, but bear with us. We will get there. Now, he sends the X-Men out to go look for this new threat, which is, of course, uh, El Tigre arriving in New York City. He has determined that the other half of the pendant he needs to achieve his power is in a local museum uh, and Cerebro has freaked out uh, announcing this threat. So the X-Men go searching for, which we see so often in the early issues, they're just running all over the city trying to find the threat. Uh, as, we, as we look at these couple of pages here, um, we get to see these characters from Central America, much like Nightcrawler and Colossus and a lot of other characters will do later. They're speaking English, but they'll just kind of work one word of Spanish in every once in a while to their speech bubbles, which is just how white writers portray anyone. Uh, you know, we see Nightcrawler speaking all English, but then he'll call someone, you know, mind Freund at the end. <laughs> we see they just kind of work these foreign words in once in a while. Uh, uh, as as uh, El Tigre and his friends arrive, uh, he wants a taxi, so he forces this man telepathically out of the taxi so they can get in. Uh, and they're rushing off to a museum to try to find uh, uh, this pendant. Uh, what were your thoughts on this arrival of El Tigre into the city? It looked oh, like the beginning of a very uncomfortable joke told by like 
an older racist uncle at Thanksgiving, not to be too timely, but it, uh, <laughs> it's like just three stereotypes or trying to hail a cab. And yeah, it just, it, it looks even worse than it reads. I think. Oh yeah. It looks, it, it looks way worse. Oh, and I do love the, the, the scene, the panels with like, like Angel being like, oh, there's there's something going on, and then then you see Bobby and Hank being like, oh, I don't, oh, like maybe it's those guys, maybe it's not, and then you get the Cyclops being like, look at those guys, those guys look like bad guys, but but he's like he doesn't want to be the one that says it. It's uh, it's interesting to see. Uh, I don't know, El T- El Tigre when he is not being uh, you know, fought against is just sheer narcissism. Like he's just like, do as I say. And now that he's telepathic, he's gonna make anyone do as he says. Uh, uh, anyway, on the next page, we're on page eleven here. Cyclops is uh, out searching, and uh, his glasses accidentally fall off which is his biggest, greatest fear constantly back then. And he uh, he nearly hurts somebody with an optic blast. People have to go scattering and he grabs his glasses and rushes away. It's really heartbreaking. This is not the first time this has happened for poor Cyclops, but it's really sad every time it happens. Uh, did you guys sympathize with him here? Yes, but you kind of wonder when you're going to strap your glasses on. Um, there's a fairly simple solution to this problem uh, that, that does not seem to have occurred to anyone. He needs his visor. I, time. <laughs> I also have questions about the collision because I understand that Scott was distracted and reading the newspaper, but uh, I implore you to look at this panel because they are... For this to happen, you kind of have to like hit somebody groin to groin. <laughs> like this is not just a casual bump, uh, and it's uh, and it's quite an effect, you know. <laughs> He's like stepping in between that man's legs almost. It's <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. Like I'm like, what was happening seconds before this? What what exactly led to this? And you know, Scott's not you know, totally at fault here. This other guy, he didn't even have a newspaper as an alibi. He just walked groin first into Scott Summers. Uh, <laughs> the X-Men have checked themselves into a local hotel so they can search for LT Gray. They have had no luck until they turn on the news and they hear about a riot at a nightclub on 39th Street. There is film. Uh, people inexplic- inexplicably started to brawl because they kind of crossed LT Gray's path and he made them all uh, fight and there's a photo taken of these three uh, Latin American men or or Central American men sitting at a table. Uh, so they have identified their their threat, uh, which is again problematic because look, here's three people who are not white sitting at this table. Let's let's uh, identify them. Uh, any thoughts on this? I actually love it. They look like they're having a ball. They got like drinks with them and and there's. And Tulak is smiling, and he's having a good time right now. <laughs> I, I love that this is this is before there are you know surveillance cameras or surveillance footage. This is before you know cell phones. This is like the club photographer <laughs> took a picture of these guys having a wonderful night out on the town, and uh, like moments before all hell broke loose. I, I love that. Yeah, 
again, it was just like a little artifact of like the technology of the time. Like this is, you know, right after Scott's trying to find a hot tip in the printed newspaper on the street. Like, great. So the, uh, the, uh, the villains have identified where the second half of the pendant is. Uh, they are going to this museum where it has been uh, found and there he's El Tigre is going to get his kind of full power set. Uh, the X-Men realize that's what's going to happen. So they rush out of the hotel in full costume. And we have this kind of humorous panel of the, the front desk clerk being like, wait, are these guys guests at our hotel? Uh, I don't know, but I intend to find out. Just look for the room where four teenage boys are all staying together. And you have found yourself the real identities of the X-Men. Uh, and then they all jump into one cab together, which, you know, one man is made of ice and one man has wings. Uh, that cabbie has a story to tell. Uh, they are rushing to the museum to find El Tigre and uh, and his friends. Uh, uh, so, uh, Arturo, will you take over this kind of next session section with the uh, action between the X-Men facing El Tigre and his friends? Yes, gladly. I will do my best. Uh, listeners, this is like, all of a sudden, we're at the at the museum, and we're going to have some intense action sequences uh, for the next three pages, each one specific to just one of the X-Men. And we start off with Beast, and he gets attacked by suddenly animated armor, uh, starts attacking him, he rushes, he jumps to escape, he is caught off guard by a art. He points out specifically that it's an Argentine bola uh, that wraps around his feet, which are, I have to just say, very distracting. These feet are my favorite thing. Anytime they're in a panel, they are the only thing that I look at. So I don't know. I should probably <laughs> talk to my therapist. But anyways, Argentine bola around big, beautiful feet. He jumps to a, uh, a strategically placed chandelier, as he calls it. Uh, he thinks he's safe, and the bolo knocks him unconscious. So Beast is taken out by a little bop to the head, literally. And the last panel of this page is Beast feet like OnlyFans content. Uh, you turn the page, and now we've got Iceman, who thankfully is coming ready to brawl and icing up uh, like a, a club. In case he's got to beat somebody's ass, all of a sudden a machete swooshes at him. Luckily, he's able to, despite being queer, is able to hit with this baseball bat that he has made out of snow. Sorry, that was uh, just a joke. Nobody got <laughs> mad. <I'm>... Um, <laughs> so, yeah, Gabby, uh, uh, Bobby whacks the machete. He's, he's all right. He looks to see where the machete came from, the corridor. Bobby trips over literally a tripwire, um, and he's telling you this whole thing. Like, I've never seen so much dialogue for somebody literally just tripping over a, a rope. Uh, he creates an ice slide, but, oh, no, now he can't stop his fall, so he crashes into a wall, taken out like a chump. Turn the page, and now we've got Angel flying around uh, looking for, for, you know, some trouble. And he finds it when a spear is chucked at him. Um, luckily misses him. High-flying angel is able to dodge the spear. Uh, he flies to what he thinks is the culprit. It is a wax dummy. And he is then taken out by... Uh, what is this character's name? I'm blanking out his name. Uh, he's taken out by a 
like a dart that has thankfully not it, it's not poisonous but it is uh laced with something that knocks him out so there you have it folks all three of the x-men all three of these x-men taken out in super fast order by like the two chumpiest henchmen you could imagine we have a, a telekinetic El Tigre uh, and then some men who are trained in some weapons that the X-Men clearly are not very familiar with, including dart guns and bolas. Uh, and yeah, it's real silly. Iceman on that slide going down the stairs is amazing. Uh, Carrie, did you have some favorite moments here? Um, it, well, one of my favorite moments is actually um, Tulak's face after he has downed uh, Angel with his dart gun. He looks delighted with himself he is having his best day ever because his blowgun has proved superior and uh he looks like he's ready for a ice cream sundae or something he's it is time to celebrate he's got two whole darts he didn't even use yet like yeah he's, he's good to go first shot uh, Richie, how about you? What did you like and dislike about these sequences? Oh, I the coloring. There's something about the coloring that just pops out at you. Um, it's you know that that part where he has the the darts, um, Tolok. Like he's he's probably my favorite character in this comic book now. He's just like he reminds me of just that um that character from like uh, the Good, Bad, and Ugly, right? Like. Like, like the guy you're like you don't want to root for but you root for at the end of the day because he's just so silly and, and out there but um what i don't like about it is you know what i actually love all of it actually i think it's actually um it's it's silly it reminds me of like indiana jones meets bat bill, bill uh, um batman from the 60s and you, you mash it up and that's that that whole fight scene you got going on I am fascinated by how many comic book sequences back then take place in museums. <laughs> they're, they're always rushing to museums for some kind of artifact. Uh, the 60s Batman show, I feel like every episode or every other episode, the, uh, the the villains were rushing to steal some ancient artifact from some museum and there's always a fight. Uh, it makes me happy. But I do think, yeah, we get some individual portrayals of the X-Men without Jean Grey. Uh, each kind of failing one by one. And uh, you get to see some of their characters shine. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a fun set of action sequences in, in its, in its way. Uh, Carrie, will you take the final three pages of the comic? Tell us what happens with, uh, Cyclops, who's the only one left standing. Yes. Yes. Cyclops is the only one left standing. He's sneaking through the museum and, um, he's discovered by a guard and El, El Tigre, um, uses his mental powers to control the guard and says, you know, keep him here. And if he moves, shoot him. So uh, Cyclops is stuck. Um, he doesn't want to use his um, optic powers and hurt this innocent guard um, because it's not his fault. And so El Tigre finds the final piece of the pendant and breaks the case and claims it for his own and puts them together. And as he does, uh, beams of energy emit from him. It's a, a very fabulous pendant. And it transforms him into um, Kukul Khan. So uh, essentially, the 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 god, I think it is, that it takes him over and um, transforms him um, into this uh, 
costumed, festooned, uh, actually quite stylish um, character at the end and, and says that, you know, now the world will not stand against the power um, that he holds. Uh, Richie and Arturo, how would you describe this costume that he's suddenly in? Oh, it's fantastic. I love it. I love it. I wish I wish he would be around now today. And like he kind of has like that whole like kind of apocalypse feel to him. Like this, like how he looks and and the ruins and the museum and all that. Oh man, I wish he was a villain today that we had. Like this, this he looks yeah. so glamorous. It looks so wonderful. He is so fabulous. Like that color scheme speaks to me. You know, I said it at the beginning, but like no joke. I mean, this is like, you know, very like Skeletor kind of evil Lynn vibes as far as like the color scheme. But you know, there's obviously this like Mayan kind of god elements to it. But the colors are fantastic. This is like the kind of action figure. Like if I had as a child that would have imprinted on me forever. Like, I, I didn't, never really knew this character, but just this look absolutely is, like, kind of thing that has, like, spoken to me since I could understand anything, since I was, like, four, and, like, I, I understood that I like certain things. This is, like, on a cellular level, my jam. He's, uh, he's bright golden-skinned. He is wearing skin-tight blue, purple, black, and pink uh, with like a silver necklace, the pendant is glowing with power. He has this massive purple cape on and this like a uh, purple headdress over his or his pink, I'm sorry, pink headdress over his purple hat. That's like very serpentine. And again, Kukulkan is meant to be the feathered serpent, right? The Garakatsukwadal. Uh, it, it really is very impressive. Actually, I think out of all of the original villains from the X-Men run, this might be my favorite costume that we've seen thus far. It's it's really quite impressive. Um as we as we kind of conclude this issue, because obviously it is carried over into the next one, uh, uh, let's hear from each of you. What what were some of your thoughts about what was effective or ineffective in this issue? Um, it's as we're talking about it. When we, when I read it the first few times, it felt very problematic. But as we're talking about it, it felt less problematic somehow. I uh, I feel better about it than I did before we started in some ways, which I'm not sure if that's if that's the way it should be or not. Let me let me hear some of your thoughts on how this went for you today. Um, I feel I feel the same. You know, reading it and 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 I was so nervous, and you could tell through this whole podcast, I was I mean, kind of nervous about talking about these subjects. But but as they kind of got a little goofier and goofier, and at the end you see how he looks and his coloring, and and it's kind of like, you know, it's it's the 1960s, and and I have to understand that there are things that aren't okay, but I have to understand that it's the 1960s, and. And so actually talking to all of you and getting your perspectives and, you know, being a white, white male and a white, fe- and a white female and, and just hearing you guys' perspectives and you're, you did it so much more eloquently than I did. You know what I mean? Like you did, like, I wish it was like different, you know, like, like I wish I was able to say what you said, you know, and, and it actually made me love this issue more being, being a, a Hispanic, being like, well, well, at least in the 1960s, there was, you know, they tried to represent it somehow. You know, even if it's, if it is kind of like in a not so good light in some panels. Yeah, it's tricky because it's like you look at this 
stuff. And, and when you when you really when you're not just looking at it as these were the superhero stories that they're telling, right? But when you start kind of seeing these desires to show, you know, different people and and kind of sometimes it's horrible, you know, stereotypes. But I always kind of look to the intention and kind of like what else was going on at the time and. I, it's something about Marvel specifically that I think is, and the X-Men specifically, like that is really commendable where, you know, these writers were taking, you know, other cultures and kind of showing you like, you know, uh, Cerebro cast has, has talked really eloquently about this, uh, you know, Connor over there, um, about how uh, Colossus was kind of like this, uh, sympathetic character that during like the red scare, you know, and Russians are like the enemy, you have this big, gentle, sweet, giant, you know, artist. Um, you know, similarly, uh, karma, you know, during, uh, the, the war with Korea or no, I'm sorry, Vietnam. Um, it's just an interesting thing to, to look at, you know? Uh, and then even, you know, back then, back with this issue, it's not handled well, but it's kind of cool that, you know, that there is, different characters and that they are given some motivations they're they're kind of working at cross purposes and then that kind of washes up pretty quickly and they just become very loyal henchmen but i don't know i appreciate that that the writers and and the creators were at least trying to give them each a different flavor so to speak carrie how about you yeah you know for me i think that Although there are definitely problematic elements um, in them, I, for me, the shining characters were the lackeys. Um, you know, they're they're treated so badly by El Tigre. He calls them awful things. He pushes them around. Um, they're not good guys. They their reaction to this is, you know, let's beat him and rob him or whatever it is that they're going to do. You know, they're going to do violence of some kind. Um, but um, you know, I, I was rooting for them and they're competent. You know, they stand up against the X-Men and what they do, they do well. And so from the point of view of a writer who's trying to figure out, you know, how to how to write reality and, and how to write different types of people, um, you know, in a way that that is respect, respectful and true um, it made me think about showing competency and how important that is in a way that I hadn't before. There were, there were three major reasons I was very nervous about this issue when I pre-read it. And I've been nervous for a couple of months. Number one, I grew up in a high school where anytime people talked about people who were Mexican, even though there were a lot of Mexican people in my high school, it was in derogatory terms about them being thieves cracking jokes sometimes about how they would rob you. And so here we have the first three characters that we see in X-Men as Hispanic characters or, or Latin American characters as thieves. That made me nervous, number one. Number two, so often Marvel back then only had white characters. You know, we've only seen two women in the X-Men all the way through in, 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 in the Scarlet Witch and Jean Grey, unless they're supporting characters. And they're not portrayed well. Uh, we haven't seen any black characters. Anytime you see an Asian or a Russian character, it's always in a caricature form as a major villain. 
And so here we have Latin American characters who are portrayed in the same way. We need heroic characters to balance these villains out. Of course, we can have villains from each culture, but it's very problematic for me when the only characters we've seen from a particular culture are, are villains. And then the, uh, the conversation about uh, the word Indian made me very uncomfortable uh, as well. Uh, as, I, as I mentioned all three of those things, I hope it's okay to be uh, transparent there. Any, any thoughts that show up uh, from any of you as we kind of conclude our thoughts here? Uh, well, for me, I think it's a, this issue is a lesson of, of what not to do, but um, maybe the value of, of taking the first step. Um, you know, as a writer, writing a person of color is a, a frightening thing because you understand how important it is, or at least I do. And so, um, you know, this was, I really enjoyed doing this and getting the opportunity to think about it. It makes me think about my work in a different way. I just, I just think it's really interesting to look at this kind of work and you can't, it's impossible to look at it without considering how far we've come and, and yet how much better and, and, and more work there needs to be done. Right, how much better it should and could be. Uh, and I think the answer to most questions is more, more representation on panel, more representation in the staffing and in, in the creative teams and, you know, like up and down, right? Like, I, I think it was really admirable, you know, Terry, what you were talking about, uh, about how you wrote triage and the fact that like, you were aware of that blind spot and and aware that your awareness of it doesn't necessarily fix it. Like the fact that you, you know, yeah. did the work and, and are seeking out the voices and like, it's just such a necessary step that when you see blunders, you're like, how is nobody catching this? You know, in hindsight, it feels, it feels obvious, but uh, I don't know. I, I, we've come a long way and, and there's, there's still a whole lot of work to be done, but it is, uh, I think the lesson of what not to do is, is a really valid one, right? Like, you know, and, and I think what you were saying, uh, Chad, also about that these were just villains. Like, I, I wasn't even taking that into consideration, that context. But you're absolutely right. Like, there's no, we don't have the new mutants running off on, you know, another title, like, doing good work. It's like, these are these are literally the characters we're getting, and they're, they're villains, and and they're not even sympathetic villains. They're just like greedy POS, you know? Uh, any final thoughts from anybody before we wrap up dialogue on issue 25? Um, just thank you so much for um, having me on. Um, I didn't realize how much this would actually affect me. Like I didn't realize reading this and saying those things out loud to other people about race and 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 what happens in, in this comic book that I love so much and these characters I love so much where it would actually make me so so nervous to talk about I didn't I didn't realize that like as as a person of, of color that it would it would affect me and if you can tell through um through this whole time period of, of, of this podcast like there was moments where 
I got tongue-tied. I, I didn't know what to say because it affected me so much and it, it actually hit me on an emotional level. And and I'm and I'm so happy that and I'll say blessed I got to actually um, be in that type of conversation with you and, and, and the people in this podcast is I'm very grateful for it. And it made me really um, I I have so much to think about now. So thank you. Thank you for being yeah. here. All, all of you really, truly. My, you know, we live in an era now where sometimes I think we take for granted what representation we do have. There are members of the X-Men and other teams who come from many cultures who are written by many writers from different spaces. Uh, we're recording this podcast the day after Thanksgiving. Uh, earlier today, I took my children to see the new movie Encanto, which is wonderful and has so much beautiful representation. Uh, there are queer characters, speaking as a gay man, uh, portrayed in media in positive ways, which even five years ago was unheard of. Uh, we're seeing female writers and female protagonists. We just watched Hawkeye last night and, and uh, you know, Kate Bishop as the focal character. We're seeing a time when we're seeing so much more, uh, so many more types of storytelling. And we get to analyze these old characters who have since come out as powerful and gay and, you know, all kinds of things. And we get to, uh, to, to love them. And that's what I love so much about this podcast is we get to look at the mythos of what we've built on, you know, from, from, uh, from this lens, uh, looking back at what started all of this, uh, what an absolute honor it is to, uh, to sit with each of you, uh, today really quickly. Let me get your thoughts on, uh, the cover for, uh, next issue. If you have that available, uh, we've got Kukulkan, uh, fighting the four male X-Men all over again. And he looks like he's ready to smash them, man. <laughs> like they're, they're about to get trounced. What were some of your thoughts on, uh, on this, in this cover? Uh, it's kind of hot that Cyclops is holding angel like that. It's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's cool. That's hot. Uh, I'm I'm intrigued by um, by Jean's absence. I really hope I I deliberately didn't read the second issue. I kind of wanted to, um, but I was worried that I would get confused about what was in which one. So um, I'm going to read it after we're done, and I I kind of hope Jean swoops in and and uh, does something really astounding without feigning. She oh, doesn't. I can I can dream. <laughs> don't 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 kill my dreams yet, Chad. We get more genes soon, but not okay. For the <laughs> ah. Arturo, I, I do love. Did I love that? I love that with with Gene absent. At least we've got somebody fainting, and it's Angel, and he looks really good doing it. Uh, <laughs> I appreciated that he brought up the apocalypse reading of uh, uh, Kulakan, and I a hundred percent agree with that. I had the same vibes, and it's even stronger on this color on this cover. Uh, the color scheme has changed a little bit. You might be able to attribute that to lighting and you know, the limits of 60s printing or whatever, but he still looks amazing. Um, I, I just style icon. I'm ready for, for a resurgence of El Tigre. Kukulkan is actually a really impressive villain in the next issue. He's very powerful. Uh, we will be back next week on Grey Malkin to review X-Men number 26, which is very dramatically titled Holocaust. The word Holocaust in its portrayal is very problematic on its own, but the definition of the word not related to World War II, the definition of the word not related to World War II is the destruction or slaughter of people on a mass scale, 
which doesn't happen in the issue anyway, but that's still the title. Uh, and we're going to be back with uh, with uh, uh, Regina from the House of Best podcast and Heather, my normal co-host, will be back. And then we'll be joined by uh, by the uh, talented writer uh, Juan Ponce, who is going to be with us next time as well. Uh, for those of you that are here, uh, we have three incredible people. Or For those of you that are listening, we have three incredible people with us who can all be found on social media. Where might people find you if they would like to engage in dialogue about today's issue or see what you guys have uh, coming up. Also, feel free to plug any uh, any work you're doing online or otherwise. Uh, let's go uh, Richie Arturo Carey in that order. Oh, on Twitter, uh, Richard Tronis, or around Richard Tronis, that's where you'll find me. And Arturo? And you can find me uh, you can find me at Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram, and you can find me regularly on X's for Podcasts, a uh, great show with good friends of mine where we cover mutants, Marvel, and magic. Uh, it started off as X-Men, and we've, we've kind of broadened our scope. Uh, I pretty much speak only exclusively about X-Men and mutants. Um, and yeah, Mr. Toy Box, where you can find some of my uh, amateur action figure photography. And I'm uh, mostly on Twitter. I'm Carhar, so the first four letters of my first name and my last name. Um, and I am there a lot when I'm trying to avoid writing my words for the day. So please come and talk to me and enable my procrastination. I, uh, I feel like I've become all of your friends prior to this uh, episode, but I'm so happy for the opportunity to just commune with you each this evening. Thank you for giving up your Friday nights and uh, and talking about X-Men and nerdy things. Uh, Carrie, I can't wait for your upcoming books and uh, Arturo and Richie, uh, in particular regarding the content of this issue, thank you for uh, your sensitivity and willingness to engage. Uh, this was a wonderful, wonderful discussion. I'm so honored to have been part of it. Um, Okay, we'll see you guys back next week on uh, on Grey Malkin Lane with issue 26, Holocaust.